Hello, Sky Watchers. Thanks for listening to the Royal Observatory's Look Up podcast. I'm Patricia. And I'm Bryony. And we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in May in this Cosmic Diary. When looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way, and even other galaxies, it is important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. Allow about 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. If you're using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red night vision mode. While we're enjoying the warmer weather of spring, why not explore some of the spring constellations? After sunset, once the sky is dark enough, look towards the south and see if you can spot the kite-shaped constellation of Bootes the Herdsman. The red giant star Arcturus is the brightest star in the constellation, but that's not all. Arcturus is also the fourth brightest star in the night sky and the brightest star in the northern celestial hemisphere. Lying left of Bootes is a semicircle of stars. This is the tiny constellation Corona Borealis, also known as the Northern Crown. The brightest star in this constellation is Alfeca and is known as the Jewel of the Crown. If you want to add one more constellation to your observing list, then look to the left of the crown and you'll spot the constellation of Hercules, the strong man. The four central stars of the constellation form an asterism known as the keystone, and you can use the keystone to find the globular star cluster M13, also known as the Great Globular Cluster. Best viewed through binoculars or a telescope, this impressive star cluster lies around 25,000 light years from the Earth and is home to over 100,000 stars. The early hours of May the 6th see the peak of the Eta Aquarius meteor shower, and with around 50 meteors per hour expected at the peak, it should be a fantastic show. Meteor showers are produced when the Earth passes through dusty debris left behind by comets, and sometimes asteroids, as they make their way through the solar system. The comet responsible for the Eta Aquarids shower is Halley's Comet, which is also responsible for the Orionids meteor shower, which peaks much later in the year, around October. The good news is that the Moon will be in a favourable phase for this year's shower, but the bad news is, is that the radiant for this meteor shower will only be visible from London just before sunrise, and even then it will be low above the eastern horizon. To maximise your chances of spotting some meteors, find a clear and unobstructed view of the eastern horizon early in the morning on May the 6th, and scan the skies around Aquarius using just your eyes. They're the best tool for this task. While you're keeping an eye out for meteors, why not do some planet observing too? The gas giants Jupiter and Saturn will both be shining brightly above the southeastern horizon before sunrise. If you have binoculars or a telescope with you, see if you can spot the Galilean moons of Jupiter, or Titan, the largest moon of Saturn. If you're not keen on being outside in the early hours of the morning, but still want to observe some planets, then wait until the 14th and look towards the west just after sunset. You should see the waxing crescent moon and the planets Mercury and Venus, with both planets lying low above the western horizon. If you're a fan of the red planet, it will be visible too. Just wait for the sky to get a bit darker and search for the constellation of Gemini the Twins. Mars's distinctive red colour will make it easy to spot amongst the stars in the constellation. May's full moon occurs on the 26th and is known as the flower moon because of all the flowers that bloom during this month in the northern hemisphere. This month's full moon will also be a supermoon, so we can refer to this month's full moon as the super flower moon. So what is a supermoon and will the moon be bigger than it normally is? Well, the moon's orbit around the Earth is elliptical in shape, and so this means that the distance between the moon and the Earth varies as the moon orbits the Earth. The point at which the moon is closest to the Earth during its orbit is called lunar perigee, and the point at which the moon is farthest away from the Earth is called lunar apogee. If a full moon occurs when the moon is closest to the Earth, it is known as a supermoon. The moon's physical size won't change, but because it will be at its closest to Earth, 
it can appear up to 14% bigger and 30% brighter. So it is well worth a look. For those living in the southern hemisphere, autumn is well underway. And although the temperature is dropping, the good news for stargazers is that the number of hours available for viewing the night sky increases as winter approaches. One object that is always worth looking at is the jewel box cluster, also known as Herschel's jewel box. Lying in the constellation of Crux, or the Southern Cross that is more commonly referred to, the jewel box is an open star cluster containing many bright stars of various shades of blue, yellow, and orange. If you're wondering why the cluster is also known as Herschel's jewel box, that's because English astronomer John Herschel described the appearance of the cluster through a telescope as a superb piece of fancy jewelry. Grab binoculars or a telescope to view this cluster and you'll no doubt agree with this description. The twinkling blue-white stars are like diamonds in the sky and see if you can spot the red ruby amongst the diamonds in the stellar jewel box. If you've been following the robotic exploration of Mars, then do keep an eye out for the touchdown of China's first lander and rover on Mars, which, at the time of recording, is scheduled to take place mid-May. If the landing is successful, China will become only the second country ever to deploy a rover on Mars. The target landing site is a broad plain called Utopia Planitia, a region that was also the chosen landing site for NASA's Viking 2 lander back in 1976, and is also currently home, though maybe for not much longer, to NASA's InSight lander. If you take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to at ROGastronomers. You may also want to check out our night sky highlights blog on our website, rmg.co.uk. But now it's time for our cosmic news. Okay, time for our cosmic news. Uh, I hope you guys really enjoyed that new little intro jingle. Um, if you don't, please just let me know and I'll see if I can find a better one. Um, I'd love to hear people's thoughts on this. Maybe we'll add this to the poll as well. Maybe which which is the best story, the new jingle or either one of our stories. I mean, if the jingle's really good, Bryony, then then we won't get any votes probably for any of our stories. I mean, <laughs> which, I mean not that I'm saying we're, we've got a competition going here. I mean, no, no, of course, there's no competition at all. Well, just in case there is anyone new joining us today, the Cosmic News part of the podcast is where Patricia and I go head to head, bringing our favourite astronomical stories that have broken in the previous month. And as I have said many times, it's not a competition, but it's 100% a competition, that Patricia is so far absolutely dominating. The thing is, though, I have not seen the results of last month's poll. While I do have a Twitter, I very rarely go on it and I never check the polls because I like to be surprised. So, yeah. Patricia. Are you ready? I am all ready. I'm all ears. All right. So as a recap, so last month, Bryony spoke about Oumuamua which was our interstellar visitor where some people claimed perhaps it was an alien starship making its way through our solar system. Uh, but as more recent evidence suggested, it was none other than perhaps just a broken shard off of a dwarf planet because it shared a lot of similar characteristics with the features that we've seen um, out at Pluto. And I spoke about the zodiacal light. So um, that wonderful triangular beam of light that you see just after a sunset or just before sunrise and the surprising um ancestor where it comes from which is mars uh, mars is potentially the source of that dust so briny i do have the results in front of me two really good stories obviously the split of the votes was 63 percent to 37 percent, and i can say that the winner of last month's poll was Oumuamua. So Yay! well done, Bryony. Very, very good story. Um, I certainly enjoyed it and well done. So yeah, Oumuamua won that one. And I, for one, am very excited, of course, to hear your story for this month. Um, I know you've chosen something very interesting as well. So I think this month's poll is going to be, it's going to be a very interesting one as yeah. well. 
let's just dive in. Let's start off uh, with your story today so I can just sort of compose myself after the news of my very first look up win. I mean, the fact that Brian is currently running around her room doing a victory lap. um, No, she's not doing that. (laughs) (laughs) I am definitely going to have to edit uh, that celebratory yell, though. Well, as I say, well done. It was a really good story, Brian. And I think the fact that you were able to tell people that it's not aliens, I think that was that was a good thing, because obviously that was dominating at some point. So it was definitely not aliens. Um, Or was it? Oh, my goodness. We've been through this, Patricia. Um, but yes, yeah, so this month, um, my story is actually tied into what we mentioned very briefly towards the end of our sort of highlights for this month. It has to do with Mars. Now, Mars, I know, has been in the news quite a lot recently, with pretty much all of the focus on the Perseverance rover. And actually, at the time of this recording, what's very exciting is that we are literally about half an hour away at this current time of finding out from NASA if Ingenuity's first test flight was successful, because that has, fingers crossed, happened. We're just waiting for the data to come back from Mars. So I'm very, very excited. I'm I'm really hoping that's work. So as you can imagine, Perseverance Ingenuity dominating the news at the moment. But there are, of course, other robotic explorers out at the Red Planet, one of which some people may have forgotten about, which is NASA's InSight lander. And we mentioned it at um, the end of our night sky highlights there. InSight is the first mission that was designed to specifically study in depth the interior of Mars. And I think that's a very important thing to, to mention, because obviously all of the um, missions to Mars to date, well, the majority of them have been focusing on looking at what, what Mars looks like today. So lots of surface imaging. Of course, the rovers are drilling into rocks, that kind of thing. But InSight specifically is designed to study the interior of Mars. And it actually has two major science goals, uh, one of which is to study the interior structure and processes of Mars. So what's happening inside Mars, because that we don't know. And the second is to figure out just how active Mars is today. So is there any activity in terms of seismic activity taking place at Mars? And also very interestingly, InSight can also measure how often meteorites impact Mars, which I thought was a really awesome thing. Yeah, so it's so sensitive that if a meteor or a meteorite smacks into the planet, it would be able to measure that. I mean, that's actually really interesting, though. I think particularly this is sort of tying in actually a bit of the stuff we do uh, at the observatory. But we have this workshop we do called Out of This World Mars. It's a holiday workshop. It's really great fun. But we specifically talk about ways of exploring Mars sort of robotically. Because obviously, if you get a human there, I mean, humans can do so much. We have brains. It's amazing. (laughs) But we can try to replicate a lot of our senses with rovers and one thing that is often forgotten about people will remember your eyes and your ears but your touch um for temperature and also for like um tremors is a huge thing and it's something that we just kind of don't necessarily think about but can tell us so much about not just the makeup of the planet but also i cannot believe i mean i I can believe it this is me being expressing amazement not actual disbelief uh, that we can build something so sensitive that it can measure meteorites crashing into the ground and then put it onto basically a bomb blast into space send it for eight months have it crash into the ground and then still work yeah the more i learn about mars rovers (laughs) and landers the more i am blown away it's it really is amazing to think that we're in the position to be able to do things like this and within a relatively short period of time I think that's something that I find weird to wrap my mind around is if we go back to the fact that space exploration or the idea of being able to first of all put probes out into space started in the 1950s and so within 60 years we've gone from tentatively putting an object in orbit around the earth to landing car-sized vehicles or car-sized rovers on the surface of another planet that is a really impressive feat yeah I mean I have to admit I I'm a bit of a Mars naysayer when it comes to things like human exploration and human habitation 
But when you put things into perspective like that, I kind of think, you know what? Maybe I am too pessimistic. <laughs> well, look, everyone who's probably been listening to this podcast will have heard me say this so many times, and Bryony knows this, that I have a real big soft spot for Mars. So for today, I actually want to talk about the second science goal, which is monitoring the seismic activity on Mars, because that's something we didn't know. Uh, well, we don't know really about Mars. And so InSight, as I say, was designed specifically for this purpose. And InSight landed on Mars back in 2018 already, which again is also blowing my mind because it feels like it only happened yesterday, but it's been there for some period of time. And it's in, in that region called the Elysium Planitia, which is that smooth plane on Mars. And the, the landing site that was chosen for InSight is actually close to the planet's equator, which is really important because unlike the rovers on Mars, which have a radioisotope power system, so in other words, uh, heat from radioactive decay of plutonium is converted into electricity, which powers uh, the rovers. InSight still has a solar array system. So it uses solar arrays to provide it with enough power. So you have to be at a good place. And obviously, the equator is a great place to land if you want to have a consistent amount of power throughout the Martian uh, year. I find it quite funny that we're talking about a solar powered thing when uh, we're currently recording this on a sunny morning and I'm sitting in front of my window sunning myself as we do this. You you are you are inside solar arrays in action there. You're just um, enjoying the sunshine, powering up your system to carry on throughout the day. So you're effectively a nice little example of insight for me. Um, but of course, InSight has a number of scientific instruments on board, one of which is a seismometer, because that is how you're going to measure seismic activity. And if you think that this seismometer is the first seismometer on Mars, then you'd be wrong, because the Viking 1 and 2 landers, which landed back on Mars in 1976, had seismometers on board, okay? However... I was waiting for that, however the data they obtained were dismissed as being of limited value due to the fact that they were affected by wind noise. That's how sensitive they were, that the wind on Mars was actually affecting them. But what they did do, to be fair to the Viking landers, is they did actually rule out powerful seismic events on Mars. So that's a good, that was interesting. So they didn't see any powerful events. Inside seismometer is far more sensitive than the seismometers were on the Viking landers. So much so that the seismometer is covered with a wind and thermal shield to prevent the instrument from being affected by the winds on Mars. But they've recently had to start burying the cable that connects the seismometer to the lander under soil because they realized that wind vibrations were actually messing with with that as well so it just shows you how sensitive this seismometer is that they've tried they realize they're going to have to put soil over it to to try and um dampen the effects from from the winds on mars which again mind blown <laughs> literally now you, the reason why you want to study seismic waves is if you're a planetary scientist, you can get a really good idea of what's happening on the interior of a planet by studying those seismic waves. And the reason for this is because if you have, say, a large quake, for example, happening somewhere on the planet, these waves from that will travel through the planet and they can travel really long distances. And they, depending on what that interior structure is like, they can pass through many different types or layers of material inside a planet. And all of those materials will alter the waves in their own way. So you look at how these waves are reaching you and you can figure out what the structure inside a planet is like by looking at how these waves, how these signals effectively change through their progression through the planet. Now, if we look at the landing site where InSight is, scientists actually believe that regions around about 1,000 to 2,000 kilometers from InSight's landing site have experienced recent volcanic activity and quakes. So when I say recent, we, we have to remember we're talking geologically recent, which is between one to 10 million years ago. I see. So we're not talking like Reykjavik recent? No. So... 
to bear in mind, this is geologically recent times in a sense, but it, it actually gets a lot more interesting. So you think, okay, there's a literal blink of an eye coming up, right? <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so that seismometer there on inside is designed, it's built to measure seismic vibrations of Mars. I think that's a lovely way of thinking about it. And these vibrations can come from a number of things. I've mentioned the wind. Wind can cause these vibrations as well. But meteorite impacts was one. And the other thing that can cause seismic waves are, of course, Mars quakes. The Earth has earthquakes and Mars has Mars, Mars quakes. quakes. Or does it? Plot twist. Hang on. Well, I mean, okay. Quick little moment for Bryony to try to predict what's coming next. So, on Earth, a lot of earthquakes are driven by shifts in tectonic plates. That's why Australia doesn't have very many, because we're like smack bang in the middle. We're very geologically old. Yeah. Fascinating side note. Australia is way older. Australians, in the sense of like Indigenous Australians, are way older than you've ever been taught. Go and look it up. It's incredible. Longest continuous history that's still going. Amazing. Where I'm going with this, though, is that does Mars have tectonic plates? Because I thought it didn't. So you're quite right, Bryony. There's no tectonic plate activity on Mars. So the question is, does Mars have Mars quakes? And the answer is, yes, it does. Oh, so and if it's not driven by tectonic plate activity, then what is it driven by? So we shall we shall get to that. That's coming up. So insight has actually measured over 500 mars quakes to date wow and about two weeks ago at the time of recording this podcast there was a news release which came out that said that the lander had detected two sizable quakes on the planet with magnitudes of 3.3 and 3.1 respectively Okay, so this is on the same scale we use here on the Earth. So these are a magnitude 3.3 and 3.1 quakes. Now, interestingly, these two quakes originated from the exact same place where two quakes were detected very early on in InSight's mission. And those quakes had magnitudes of 3.6 and 3.5, respectively. So these four quakes have all originated from a region on Mars called Cerberus Fosse. So that suggests that this region is seismically active. Now, I've mentioned that Mars is not tectonically active. There aren't tectonic plates. So, okay, what's going on here? Well, we've got these quakes that InSight have measured, but this is not the only evidence that something is going on in that Cerberus Fosse region. So in about November or possibly December last year, a scientist from the University of Arizona published an article saying that there was evidence that a lava flow in that region, which is estimated to have happened somewhere between, and here's the blink of an eye, 53,000 to 210,000 years ago. That is actually a geological blink of an eye, though. That is a geological blink of an eye. Um, so they they spotted evidence of lava flows in that region. So based on that article, based on the evidence that's coming in from Insight, it suggests that Mars might not be a dead world in terms of volcanic activity but may well actually have some residual volcanic activity below its surface. Wow. And that's what we're seeing. That's what we're detecting from these quakes. So obviously that's been a big thing about Mars because we know Mars has got volcanoes on its surface. Obviously Olympus Mons being a famous example of that. You've got all, um, there's even one, I think it's Elysium Mons, which is in that region as well. So you've got those there. So this is, this is really, really cool because we often get questions from people, from members of the public, where they ask us, what is the point of sending rovers and landers, you know, to planets because they're expensive? What are we getting from it? And the point is, is that if we did not have insight on the surface, we would not know that these quakes were taking place. So yes, there might be visual evidence from orbiting spacecraft, but that's not the same as having a lander on the surface experiencing and measuring active quakes taking place at the red planet. 
But now, here's also a really cool thing, Bryony. So you know that sometimes the orbiting spacecraft have seen landslides taking place on Mars. You can often see that. Question is, are Mars quakes responsible for producing some of those landslides that have been imaged from space? So, so now you can see how these threads might start being pulled together into a, a, something more cohesive. And we're starting to see Mars in a literal different light because for many years we've just assumed you know you don't see any volcanoes erupting so maybe it is a dead world on the inside but now we're starting to think maybe mars isn't so so dead so that's a really cool thing and and again why i for one love the fact that we're able to send spacecraft out there but i have to end things off with the uh-oh maybe not an uh-oh but just to bear this in mind so this is this very much ties in with look, what I said at the end. Of exactly the what you diary. said there at the end uh, when we were doing the highlights for this month. Elysium Planitius, that region on Mars, is heading into the extremely cold Martian winter. And dust has been collecting on the solar arrays on InSight, which isn't great. Now, we know that this was a problem, a huge problem with spread and opportunity. However, they used to have dust devils blow over them which would systematically clear off their solar arrays and all of a sudden the batteries would be able to charge up we have not had that happen with insight and this is a problem so what mission scientists have done is they've actually reduced science operations to keep the lander safe and going throughout the martian winter to give you an idea of just how much dust is actually covering those solar arrays they are only producing 27% of their dust-free capacity. And that power has to be shared amongst loads of instrumentation on that lander. So you can certainly understand the need to reduce or halt some science operations because the last thing you want to do is deplete the power on, on that lander. So scientists are confident that they'll be able to resume full science operations in July because by that point, Mars will be moving out of the winter season into spring and into warmer weather. But I, for one, am certainly keeping my fingers crossed that InSight survives the Martian winter and that maybe, just maybe, a little dust devil will pass over the lander and clear those arrays because if if you want to get an idea of how dusty it is, you can have a look. Mars, uh, sorry, NASA published lots of photos of the lander. Uh, they have, to, they do that also. They take lots of photos of the arrays to see how dusty they are. Have a look at that, and you can certainly understand why there are some concerns. And we know, as I say, we're spreading opportunity. Yeah, I mean, rest in peace, guys. I miss them so much. But that's that's the hazards of having solar arrays on a dusty planet with no way of effectively cleaning them. But yes, so Mars quakes are a real thing. How awesome is that? I think that is pretty amazing. And I, I am very, very excited and really, really hoping that we get to see more from insight hopefully it manages to survive the winter i mean i i I, i'm keeping everything crossed that i can cross briny at this point because insight's done so much brilliant work and i really hope that it can see through it a couple more years because obviously landers are going to have a limited lifespan there will be a point where perhaps if the if the solar rays are not cleared that generating capacity is just going to get to a point where it's not even going to be able to keep itself warm and that's a critical thing because the nights get really cold on mars as well so um all of a sudden i feel that it just that just ended so sadly like we just did did. but you know the exciting thing though mars quakes mars quakes yeah i feel like that should be a really cheesy sci-fi movie mars quakes exclamation marks or something i mean if that if there really is no movie by that to anyone listening uh you can send the royalties my way once you make a successful (laughs) movie called mars quakes but from mars to perhaps a region that people did not think they might be exploring today briny because yes what what have you chosen for this month so before i actually get into my story though let's just um quickly say we uh we just received news we may or may not have had the uh the, the live broadcast of ingenuity going was, on the background. Yeah. <laughs> it did it 
I did it. I mean, it's just, it's, oh, I, I can't even begin to explain how amazing this is. It's just, we've flown a helicopter, a helicopter on Mars. I just. Amazing. Oh, yes, science is cool. I'm sorry. I don't care what anyone says. If there's ever a reason to get into science, it's because you can get into engineering and you can do stuff like this so for any students who are listening to this podcast this is the kind of thing that science can get you into you could be part of that group who now take this on and create that future generation of drones and flying explorers that will be able to explore mars so I, yeah, big congratulations to NASA and all their partners who worked on this. And I'm sure as the data continue to come through, there'll be some images, as I said, perhaps even uh, some videos. But yeah, this is a this is a historic moment. This is powered flights on another planet in our solar system. Considering the first powered flight on the Earth happened 1903, 2021 powered flight on another planet. I just I'm flawed, Bryony. <laughs> ingenuity. Yeah, through perseverance. <laughs> oh, oh, oh amazing, me. amazing. So from our Mars interlude into my story, which has nothing to do with Mars. Um, it's not even technically an astrophysics story, but it is a very fundamental physics story. Uh, and not just that, but the way it's been reported, it's sometimes been tied to like dark matter and things like that so you know it's uh it, it's definitely one that will fit here i think um, i am talking about actually two experiments that have come out with results recently that is the lhcb experiment at cern and the muon g-2 experiment at fermilab so to explain these experiments we're gonna have to first off talk a little bit about the standard model of particle physics because you see when I say the muon experiment or LHCB which is talking about B meson decay I mean these are all words that kind of don't really make a whole lot of sense so let's go back and just briefly talk about the standard model what it is and what it isn't and then then I can explain why the results of these experiments are so interesting Okay, so standard model of particle physics. Basically, it classifies and describes the interactions between all the elementary particles that we found so far. So there's a whole host of elementary particles out there. In fact, there's a whole lot more than what is made up than, than what we are made up of. You see, we're actually only made up of three, kind of four uh, elementary particles. And that is two of the quarks, the up and the down quark, uh, and of course they're, they're anti-quark anti uh, compatriots, and then also electrons, and I suppose electron neutrinos. So this is what's called the first generation of matter in the standard model, and it's, it's yeah, it's, it's everywhere. It's what we can touch. Now, there are two other generations of matter, which are pretty much heavier versions of the first. I mean, there are some differences, particularly when you talk about quarks, but let's just go with heavier versions of your first generation of matter. So you can split these matter particles into your quarks and your leptons. So your quarks, that's the things that make up your nucleus, and then your leptons, that's things like electrons, and then the heavier versions of those, one of which we're going to be talking about, which is the muon. Now it's worth mentioning that the standard model doesn't just talk about those, it also talks about the force carrying particles. These are the particles that well, literally, as the name suggests, carry the forces. So think about your photon. Your photon is what carries the electromagnetic force. So light is an electromagnetic wave, and you can think of it, I guess, as being made of photons. So that's that. But there are four fundamental forces in nature. So we have the photon, then we have the W and Z bosons, which carry the weak nuclear force. You have your gluons, which carry your strong nuclear force. But there is one more fundamental force, and that is gravity. Now, the standard model just does not include gravity. In fact, at its base, when it was first conceived, it didn't even include mass. According to the very beginning of the standard model, there was no mass. And so that's where the Higgs boson comes from, the, uh, the boson that gives everything else mass, so to speak. Please, particle physicists, don't come for me. <laughs> 
Yes, please don't. Although if you do have a letter of complaint, you can direct it to, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So that's, that's a very important thing is that we know the standard model is not complete. It does not include gravity. So we know that there is more out there and that's what particle physicists are looking for. They're looking for something new to get a more complete picture of reality because we don't have that. And that's not saying that we don't understand physics at all. Like we very much understand very, very well how a lot of things work. And in fact, we do have a very good theory of gravity, Einstein's general relativity, but it does not play nicely with uh, the standard model. So trying to find out how to marry these two, this is a very active area of research. So that is ongoing. Um, we do not understand everything, but it's not like we understand nothing. We just don't quite understand everything. Okay, so what does this mean, though, in the context of these experiments? Now, these experiments are looking at these elementary particles called muons. So muons are basically heavy electrons. Once again, particle physicists, please don't come for me. <laughs> Uh, the reason I say that is because particularly in the LHCb experiment, they were testing something called lepton universality. So muon is kind of lepton. And basically uh, what lepton universality states is that for the specific decays, the universe doesn't care whether this particle, this unstable particle decays into a muon or an electron. So you should get roughly equal amounts of it. It doesn't, it doesn't care which one it goes into. Now, this unstable particle, uh, it's something called a B meson, uh, which is, uh, it's a kind of composite particle made up of a B quark or anti-quark and then something else that's getting a bit too technical, I think. Let's more focus on the outcome, which was a breaking of lepton universality, uh, which sounds kind of, it's a very dry way of putting it, but basically what they saw was that for every roughly 100 electrons that they would get out of the decay, they would only be getting around 85 muons. So they were seeing that instead of being an equal ratio of one to one, they were seeing very much a bias in favor of electrons. So that's interesting. So based, so what they were expecting versus what they observed was different. Now, yeah. okay, so... So what is that? So, all right, I, I will leave it to you to unpack because I suppose... What does it mean? What does it mean? But yeah, perhaps I mean, there's a bit more to the story, isn't there, Bryony? A little bit more, yeah. Well, that's the thing. Like, what what does it mean? Because the standard model predicts the behavior of these particles really, really well, and so it's indicative of new pot of potentially new physics as to why these particles are not behaving the way that we expect them to now. One thing that is quite interesting about these results is it's saying, okay, well, the heavier version of the electron does not crop up as much in this particular decay. You know, the, they, they expect the decay modes to appear equally and, and it didn't. So is it because it's heavier? It shouldn't be, but is it? We don't know. So this is something that we need to keep on studying. So there's, there's lots of different... Um, I guess, theories out there as to what it could be. Are these things called leptoquarks, this idea of maybe a fifth force of nature, all these very interesting, interesting ideas. Um, but this is really just the beginning of this experiment. The LHCb experiment still has a few more runs to do. They've still got a lot more data they're going to be getting and then analysing. So this is, this is really exciting because this is evidence of what we thought was a symmetry just not being there yeah and i think that's i'm glad that you mentioned that they are going to be doing more experiments because obviously someone listening to podcasts might go but what if it's just a fluke what if it's an error in your measurements or something which obviously that's something that is being looked at and by repeating exactly well this this experiment has already been going on for quite a few years so they really have been really studying this to try to see if there is any way but that you to explain it, but it's it's still it's still ongoing. It's really really exciting. You know, it doesn't sound all that exciting maybe at first, which is I think why a lot of the sort of pop science stuff comes out with fifth force of nature. All this when it it might be something more I guess quote unquote boring, but this this is evidence of physics beyond the standard model, and this is some of the first concrete evidence we have had in 
decades. That's huge. I mean, that honestly is a big thing. And this is why we do what, well, not we, because we're not actually doing it, but this is why particle physicists, this is why people saying that build these amazing, amazing, um, I want to say machine, but I mean, if you think about it, the fact that they're building these massive particle accelerators, it's because we're trying to get a better understanding of what is happening because we think we might understand it, but as this suggests, maybe there are bits out there that we're not quite yet aware of. And that's what we're seeing as that. Well, we, I'm not saying we are seeing potentially we've got this tantalizing glimpse that maybe we need to revisit the model. And I think that's, that that's exciting. Well, that's, that's exactly it. That's the really, really exciting thing about this is that this is, this is something for theorists to go after because there's all sorts of theories for physics beyond the standard model, but experimental evidence has been pretty slim pickings. You know, when the Higgs boson was discovered, in some ways it was a bit of a disappointment because people were saying, hang on, okay, but this is it. This is what we predicted based on this theory that we know is not complete. And it didn't give us many places to kind of jump off, to, to go and try to find find more information. You know, that's on honestly what you want is you want something that fits most things, that fits most of what you expected, but gives you a little bit of a, a little thread to keep on chasing, a little, a little, a little light in the distance to go, hang on, I don't know what that is. So I think what's really exciting is that we just got this, but then as well as that, not even a week later, I think, Fermilab, which is another particle accelerator, this time in uh, Illinois rather than buried under the Swiss-French border. So Fermilab has released some results from an experiment that has also been going on for decades. But now the experimental evidence is a lot stronger. And this is another thing that is really, really excellent evidence of new physics. So what is this experiment? So it's called the muon G minus two experiment. And what it's doing is it's measuring the anomalous magnetic moment of the muon. Okay, so let's just quickly say what the anomalous magnetic moment is. So all elementary particles have, say they have some quantity called spin. That's not like mechanical spin, it's, it's, this, it's this quantum property. Uh, if you think of them as electric dipole that's spinning, you end up with this magnetic moment. So according to the Dirac equation, uh, if you go back, if you feel like deriving it, then you go for it. <laughs> you, you, you can derive what this magnetic moment should be, this, uh, what's called this G factor, and it should be two. However, experimental evidence suggests that it's actually not two. By the way, this is only for electrons and muons. Other elementary particles have different G factors, but for specifically for uh, electrons and muons, we are talking about uh, G factor should be two. But it's not, so that's why it's called the anomalous magnetic moment and also why it's called the muon G minus two experiment. It's this tiny little bit extra to two. Now, why is that? Well, to fully explain that, we have to talk about quantum field theory, which is not something that we're going to, but suffice it to say that you can think of empty space as not being empty. It's actually full of this particle soup almost, of all these virtual particles popping in and out of existence. And basically, According to Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, this is allowed to happen. You can have virtual particles pop up and disappear. Yeah. And that's, that is also saying to wrap your mind around. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of, in a weird way, I kind of visualize, you, you know, like if you have a fizzy drink and you've got all the bubbles popping up on the surface, yeah. that's, that's how it looks in my mind. I know it's not quite the same, but I just sort of, sort of see space time kind of fizzing <laughs> with these particles and, and you know these virtual particles popping in and out. I know it's not the same you know it's not the worst way of thinking about it that's basically you end up with virtual particles popping into you and out of existence and these virtual particles well they can still affect I guess so-called real particles just because they're, they're virtual doesn't mean that we that they don't have any effect and basically what you end up with is this quantum fuzziness if you will uh, where you end up uh with these corrections needing to be done to your magnetic moment because of this sort of virtual particle soup. Uh, it was only a, a year or two ago that uh, an international collaboration published 
a theoretical value for the anomalous magnetic moment of the muon. So the way that they did this is they went through and they used all this experimental evidence to try to calculate all of these corrections, all these loop corrections and these virtual particle corrections to the anomalous magnetic moment. So this gave us a very, very nice bounded value for the anomalous magnetic moment of the muon. Now this experiment, in fact, 20, 20 years ago, almost exactly, the same experiment that we're talking about, just it was located in a different place, found that the anomalous magnetic moment of the muon was higher than was calculated by theory. However, it wasn't accurate enough to claim really anything. It was only about like three, 3.5 sigma um, certainty, I, I guess, which is not enough to claim discovery, but it's certainly very interesting. So. Over the past 20 years, what they've done is they've disassembled the detector, taken it to um, to a different location, to Fermilab, uh, reassembled it, increased its sensitivity, reran the experiment, and found the same thing. So what this experiment does is it fires muons around this magnetized ring. Their magnetic moment processes as they go uh, as they go around this ring. Now, muons are unstable particles, so they decay into electrons, electron neutrinos. Now, as they do that, they will, I guess, well, you know, they'll fire off their, their, their decay products, one of which being an electron, which can then be measured. So we have these detectors sort of inside uh, this sort of this, this donut in which the muons are circling around. And the angle at which the electrons are captured, that tells us the precession angle of the muon's magnetic moment. And so they so they'll be continuously monitoring the whole time while this experiment's running to exactly. to pick up. So exactly. it's not a case of we'll just look every now and then. When you're running this, you are constantly recording data to capture as many of these, I assume, events as possible, if not all of them. I would hope. <laughs> so. I, oh, I mean, look, there's no such thing as capturing all events in part. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, that's that's exactly that's exactly it. We they were looking to see. Try to capture exactly, try to quantify exactly this anomalous magnetic moment, and they've quantified it down to four point two sigma, which is really, really not quite the five sigma required for a declaration of a discovery, but that's really close. And they're still showing that it is still significantly larger than the theoretical prediction, which is massive. This is absolutely massive because once again this is evidence of physics outside the standard model we cannot explain why the muons anomalous magnetic moment experimentally is not in agreement with the theory i i that i think that statement for me really it, it it's exciting because that's the point is that the fact that we can't explain it which means we have to effectively in a sense, go back to the drawing board and we have to investigate this further. We can't just go, oh, well, okay, doesn't matter. Anyway, let's just carry on with life. It, it, it really requires now some minds far cleverer than mine, Brody, to, to figure out what is going on. And I know that you say we're not quite at the five sigma yet. But the fact that what the initial ones were about what three and a half sigma, yeah, I think, for this three. one, and now it's at four point two. We're getting a lot closer. Getting though. there, yeah. However, you know how we said before, got to go back to the drawing board. Well, there is a group that have been for the past little bit, uh, and they published their results not long. I think they've got a preprint on the archive. Uh, and it got published around the same time as Fermilab's results, they have calculated the anomalous magnetic moment of the muon in a different way to the way that the international group that Fermilab's result was using did. They used experimental results. So previous experimental results, and they used that to inform their theory and sort of say, okay, well, we see this difference for these decays, which means this, we see this for these particular decays, which means this, and sort of building up this picture like that. Now, what these guys did is they did something that quite frankly gives me a headache. See, the problem with quantum chromodynamics is it's it's great, but it's 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 very complicated. And you have so many loops 
so many little virtual particles that it's impossible to have a like a computer model of it or is it so Ooh. what this group did is they something called a lattice qcd these are just words to me quite frankly but they used far too many hours <laughs> of a supercomputer in germany to calculate using uh, these like so-called lat lattice corrections to the anomalous magnetic moment. And their result is quite similar to the result obtained by Fermilab. Their uncertainties do just overlap. Yeah. Okay, this is. <laughs> so this is where it starts to get a little bit spicy because yeah. Fermilab in their official, you know, they're using this this published very well decided understood muon uh, anomalous magnetic moment value but then this other group has come through and said actually we completely disagree with that we think it's this we've done a completely different gone about it a completely different way so this is going to be a really interesting thing to see what happens now because this is evidence of new physics to begin with it's trying to explain why is it that the muon has a higher anomalous magnetic moment than expected. This is where this idea of a new force comes in or a new something else, because again, it's saying maybe there's something more that's prompting it to be, well, higher than it should be. Uh, and you know, there's all sorts of symmetries in physics. You know, first, to begin with, we were talking about this lepton universality and this idea uh, that there shouldn't really be any difference between your electron and your muon decay modes, uh, but there is. And that has a really interesting kind of callback to matter-antimatter uh, matter, asymmetry. I mean, and it's, and I'm not saying it's like exactly the same or even linked or anything, but it's just really interesting when you look back in physics, there are these fundamental times when one thing is preferred over another. And while some of them we can explain, a lot of them we cannot explain. We cannot explain why there is so much matter in the universe. If we go back to the very start, then it's, you know, there should have been equal amounts of matter and antimatter created. So what's happened to it? Where is it? That is a really, a really big question in physics. Uh, you know, dark matter, what is it? Dark energy, what is it? All of these questions could maybe be answered by the kind of new physics that these results herald. However, we need to be really careful in what we say. This is not evidence of a new force. This is not a fifth force of nature. This is, we cannot say that. You can say that this could possibly explain these results, but there would be so much more that we would need to do in order to explain well, the emergence of fifth force, if you will, trying to explain how and why and basically what other effects it could produce. So because of that, I've, I've, I found it a little bit frustrating reading through some of these pop science articles, reading, you know, it's like, oh, evidence of a new force, evidence of a new particle, evidence of a new whatever, when it's, I don't know, I, I would much rather it come out with, we can't explain this. That's why, while there have been, you know, a lot of news articles sort of saying, we don't understand physics. And while obviously it's not quite like that, I do prefer those articles because that's more correct. We don't, we have found something that we cannot explain from this theory that we know is not complete, but we know is very accurate for most things. This is evidence of something we don't understand. And that is good enough for me. Yeah, I think that's a good point that you raised there is that sometimes I suppose it's it's a tricky line that you where it's something exciting that's come out, but you also want to grab the reader's attention. And so one way of doing it is to phrase it in that way. But then if you actually go through the article, I hope in most cases it does get to a point where they say, well, we're not saying it's this. It could be this because otherwise, uh, again, we can we can actually throw back quite nicely right into your story from last one with Oumuamua, where a lot of news outlets latched on to the alien spacecraft part, not so much the more 
say real science part which is yeah. like no it's pretty much just a comet <laughs> so so it can happen and and that's why a lot of caution i think should be paid when articles like this come out is just yeah read through the article see what's being said and if any and in if, if anything maybe try and find a, a website or a news outlet that's I don't say more sciencey. That sounds like a wrong word, a wrong description. But I kind of feel like there there's some news outlets where you you know that the science in that article is going to be correct, or their interpretation of the results. It's going to be a lot yeah. more um, robust, I guess. But yeah, it is really fun though. Um, for all these experiments, they always publish an accessible version of it. Like they they always yeah. publish something for the layman. I mean, to be fair, it is still quite in depth it is <laughs> um i mean it's you know it's not super super easy but i i really do encourage everyone whenever any of whenever anything new comes out head to the source look at it yeah look at you know this this telescope it's been you know we've published they've found this new thing go and look at that press release um go yeah. and look at what it says there not at these sort of third hand things that you you often get i mean uh, i don't know it's I do, I really love it when people are interested in these things and ask me questions, but it, it is really interesting though, having people say, oh, like this dark matter thing. I, I, I had uh, I had someone ask me, oh, you know, is this dark matter? And I was like, I, well, I honestly didn't even realize that they were talking about the Fermilab results. Like I didn't even realize because yeah. they, because the, I think that's what, it's what sticks in people's heads, which is why, why it's published like this. But I, I really do prefer if it's just here. You know, if someone says, oh, hang on, there's something they don't know. I'm like, yes, that is. That's correct. <laughs> I think that's, I mean, that's amazing. There is, this theory has predicted so many things perfectly and still continues to. In fact, that's half the frustration with it is that it just keeps on being right without giving us anything new. But now we've got something new. And that is exciting. Yeah, because now we have to figure out exactly. what is going on. Exactly. Well, I mean, I think that's also, again, any students who might be listening to this podcast, will you potentially be the person who figures this out? I mean... You could be. Could that's, be. And not just that, but there's so many other things out there. The, the more that you learn about a field, the more you learn about all of these unanswered questions there's so many things that you can learn about and just go hang on i don't like what's this thing here and someone will be like oh well i mean we're not really too sure about like this bit here that here are some questions and you know you can then reach a point where you can go and you can answer those questions which i think is the best thing about science it certainly is and this is why we love science as much as we do exactly I think we shall end the podcast there. I mean, this was this was action packed. I mean, we had I a know. breaking news segment. We've got our brand new jingle. I mean, there's so much that's happened in today's podcast. I think we both need a bit of a lie down after recording this. No, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh. Well, thank you, Bryony, for uh, a really interesting uh, story there, and also not an easy one to talk about because of the complexities involved so i if i mean i don't have a hat on but if i did uh, i mean i would be tipping it to you because i think you did a brilliant job there in in being able to take something so complex and put it into a nice little bite-sized package for people to to go away from um and yes so there we have it your two stories for uh this month from Mars quakes all the way down to uh, our understanding of what's happening at um, sort of that subatomic level, which who would have thought we would have gone from Mars quakes all the way down to that scale. But that is what happens. Uh, two great stories. So please, please, please don't forget to vote for your favorite story when the poll goes live on our Twitter account at the beginning of the month. And if you aren't following us on Twitter, why not? Please search for us at ROG Astronomers. There you'll be kept up to date with everything that's happening in astronomy. And of course, we do have our Night Sky Highlights blog. So if you enjoyed hearing what's up in the night sky, but you want to actually perhaps learn a bit more, then please do go to rng.co.uk and you'll be able to find our Night Sky Highlights blog on the website 
that, along with a whole bunch of other amazing resources as well. So there's just a whole bunch of astronomy stuff on our webpage. But with that, we do have to bring our podcast to an end today and to all of our listeners we wish you clear skies many happy nights of of observing and until next time keep looking up